this morning. And as we're turning there, just a reminder, on Sunday nights we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and uh, all the way through, and tonight we'll be studying uh, the final section of uh, one of the minor prophets, the book of Joel, uh, this evening, and we'd love to have you come out. And uh, it has a very much an end times focus, and so we'll be looking at that tonight. We'll be, um, we're in our kind of our final message related to this series. Uh, it is uh, a summer series entitled Encouragements from Second Corinthians, and uh, summer is uh, going by the wayside. And uh, the single great uh, encouragement we want to look at is in chapter 12, verse 9, uh, where the Lord said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. But it really requires uh, two sermons to do justice to it. And so today um, we'll set the table for it for next week. And, uh, but very, very valuable lessons in even doing that this morning. I do want to begin with a little bit of context in chapter 11, verse 16, though we'll be looking at chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, principally this morning. Paul wrote to them and he said, I say again, that no one think uh, me a fool, if otherwise at least receive me as a fool, that I, may al uh, I also may boast a little. And what I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting, seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. For you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face. To our shame, I say that we were too weak to do that to you. But in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly. I am bold also. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they of the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of the gospel? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often from the Jews five times. I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep and journeys often in perils of waters, in peril of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils of the city, in perils of the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false uh, brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides all of the other things that come upon me in just the daily of life and my deep concern for all of the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under uh, Aretas, the king was guarding the city uh, with a garrison, according, uh, desiring to arrest me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. 
I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know. God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which, were, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your living word. Thank you that it's timeless. Jesus, you said that it uh, would outlive the heaven and the earth, have the final say in all of human history. And every individual life and how thankful we are to be able to turn to it now and grateful for your love, grateful for your power, grateful for your wisdom, and very, very confident in the work and the ministry of your Holy Spirit to take the truths that are found on the printed page and, Lord, to give them understand, us understanding of them and then to make them a part of our relationship with you. And that's a work of your Holy Spirit that we pray for now as we study your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This encouragement that is uh, found in verse 9 as we uh, read it, it follows a pattern. Uh, of uh, all of the other encouragements that we've looked at in the course of, of this series. And uh, uh, some of the greatest encouragements found in the entire Bible are found in this book of 2 uh, Corinthians. And yet, as we've seen over and over again, how often uh, these things are birthed out of great difficulty in our lives and certainly birthed out of great difficulty in the Apostle Paul's uh, life in the uh, form of the very unjust, unfair treatment that he received from uh, the church there in Corinth. Again, it was a church that Paul, God had used to, Paul to use to bring into existence following his departure there after 18 months of ministry and establishing it as we've seen a great group of detractors uh, of the Apostle Paul rose up in the church, began to take positions of uh, leadership and influence within the church, and they began to attack the Apostle Paul's uh, uh, pastoral and apostolic authority within the church. He represented, he and his authority represented kind of the, the lone and greatest and final hurdle to them being able to take control of this church that God had birthed. And they slandered him. They slandered him before the entire church in his absence. They accused him, as we've seen, of a lack of integrity. That is, no doesn't mean no. Is yes doesn't mean yes. They condemned his failure to supply the church with letters of recommendation. 
They viewed the perishing of his body, the decline of his body, given the difficulty of his life as an evidence of God's disfavor uh, toward him, of God's displeasure with him. And they went so far as uh, to declare the Apostle Paul to be mad, of being mentally and emotionally unstable. And as we saw last time, they accused him of being meek and gentle face to face, uh, but then he would go away and then write these strong, bold uh, letters uh, uh, to them from a distance, and that he was weak and cowardly face to face, and and then a bully uh, in writing his letters from a, a distance. And then here this morning, they add two new accusations against Paul, the first of which Paul addressed is in chapter 11, as we read it, they attacked his commitment to the church, his commitment and concern for the church in Corinth, as opposed to their commitment and concern for the church. After all, the Apostle Paul isn't always here. Uh, why would you heed him? We're always here. And, uh, and using the fact that God had called him as a church planner and the, the fact that it required that he couldn't be in any one place uh, all of the time uh, 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 against Paul. And Paul's response there was, we read it in chapter 11, verses 22 uh, through uh, 28. Verse 28 is the key there when he says, beside the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all of the churches. And Paul declares his concern for the church at Corinth, for all of the churches that he had established, and then even beyond that, and, and then communicated what it is that he had gone through, the hardship that he endured, not for his own glory, not for his own benefit, certainly not for his own ease, but for the sake of the churches, and, and including uh, the Apostle Paul. And then second, they attack Paul's spiritual credentials compared uh, to their own, and specifically in the realm of spiritual gifts, and even more specifically in the realm of receiving visions from God and revelations uh, from God. And that's what Paul addresses here in verses 1 uh, through 7. Remember that the church in Corinth was very, very enamored with spiritual gifts. Paul addressed it in his first letter uh, to the church at, at Corinth. And uh, specifically, uh, their, uh, they, the more uh, public, the more visual spiritual gifts uh, that a person might be able to um, demonstrate in front of a church body, and then as a result of it to get people to think that they were more spiritual than they were, or uh, to view them as more favored by God than others who didn't manifest those exact same gifts. And you might remember uh, that Paul not only had to correct their unbiblical use of the spiritual gifts there in the church, but he also corrected their motivation behind their exercise of the gifts. They were doing it out of a desire to be seen, a desire to be seen and viewed as spiritual rather than out of a motivation of love for God and love for others. And, and so Paul corrected that. And apparently these false apostles were claiming to have all kinds of visions, all kinds of revelations from God uh, all of the time, and then asking the church at Corinth. It's just these are dirty, dirty people. Uh, 
very dirty people. Uh, so they're talking about all of the visions, all of the revelations that they had received, and then asking the church if they had ever remembered the Apostle Paul uh, having as many visions or as many revelations uh, as, uh, as they had. And they were claiming that their visions and their revelations to be an evidence of God's favor upon their life and uh, a greater favor than Paul had experienced uh, as evidenced by these things when he was with them uh, and present with them. And when we're told uh, uh, that uh, Paul established the uh, church uh, supremely uh, not upon uh, the manifestation of spiritual gifts, as important as those are to Christians, as important as that is to the Christian life, we're told in Acts chapter 18, verse 11, that when he built that church and established that church, he determined that it would not be built upon supremely the manifestation of spiritual gifts, but upon the teaching of God's Word. Where Luke writes in Acts chapter 18, verse 11, and Paul continued there a year and six months teaching the Word of God among them. Additionally, the reason that the church in Corinth was in danger of falling prey uh, uh, to the claim of these false apostles to be more spiritual than Paul based upon visions and based upon uh, revelations was be not because Paul didn't have many visions and because he didn't have many revelations from God. The fact of the matter is that he did but he kept them to himself, and he never used them as an occasion uh, to boast. He never used them in order to try and get a congregation to think more highly of him uh, than they ought to ha have thought in the way that his detractors uh, were doing. He didn't want them to consider him spiritual or anyone spiritual on the basis of the manifestation or the exercise of spiritual gifts as opposed to the only genuine revelation of uh, true spirituality, and that is living an obedient Christian life that is based upon uh, 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 Paul saying, I want you to, to come to conclusions about my spirituality based upon the life that I lived with you. And what came out of my mouth for those 18 months when I was with you? You notice at the end of verse 7 there in chapter 12, as he says this, but I refrain lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be and hears of me. The only way he's saying, the only conclusion I want you to come to concerning my spiritual maturity or any Christian spiritual maturity is what you see in their life and what you hear coming out of their life, not based upon spiritual gifts. And Paul considered all this kind of thing uh, boasting, this boasting of the false apostles, and he called it in verse 1, unprofitable and foolish. In verse 6, he said, this is the, these are the actions of a fool. These are not the accusations or the claims of, of the Holy Spirit. But again, in that early part of verse 6, he decided to write of his visions 
and revelations in the light of their attack upon him uh, in, the, uh, in, in this form so that the church at Corinth could know the truth about the accusations and in order that they wouldn't be seduced by these false apostles. He, he tells them the truth about this dynamic, this aspect in this Christian life for their protection. He did not want to. And you see it all the way through chapter 11 and chapter 12. He didn't want to boast in these things. He didn't even want to make them known because he didn't want people to conclude about him or anyone else that a person is spiritual again based upon these things as opposed to just simply living an, a, a, a simple, obedient Christian life. And it is only his love for the individuals that are attending this church and his shepherd's heart for them that caused him to speak about any of these things at all. It was only because of the danger that their faith was in, that they were about to, that church and their lives to be hijacked by these false apostles that he made any of this public. We would not, barring these circumstances, have this revelation that is ours in the latter portion of chapter 11 and the early portion of chapter 12 uh, apart from this concern that he had for the individual member of the church. And, you, and, and, and so Paul gives an example of a revelation that he had a vision in his life in verses 1 through 5. And you notice that when, when Paul went to give them an example of the kinds of visions and the kinds of, of revelations that he received from the Lord, though he's only going to give them one, uh, he speaks of visions, plural. He speaks of revelations, uh, plural. He had many of them. From the revelation of Jesus to him on that road to Damascus that resulted in his conversion. And then on the heels of that, the vision that he had in Damascus of Ananias then coming to him and laying hands upon him to minister to him in Acts chapter uh, nine, And then upon his return to Jerusalem, now as a Christian in a trance, Jesus let him know that Jerusalem was not going to be the center of his ministry. They wouldn't receive his message, and that he was to go and take the gospel uh, to the Gentiles, Acts 22. And then concerning his full recognition of Jesus as the Messiah and, and the, uh, the gospel as the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures uh, in Galatians chapter 1, he said all of that came to him uh, through the revelation of Jesus. There was the vision in which he saw the man of Macedonia calling him to come to Macedonia with the gospel and God speaking through that vision. In Acts chapter 18, at the outset of his ministry uh, there in Corinth, the Lord came to him and spoke to Paul uh, in the night by a vision saying, do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. Acts chapter 18. Years later, following his arrest in uh, Jerusalem, a plot is made against his life 
uh, by the religious uh, Jews. This was made known to him uh, by the Lord. He makes his way then from Jerusalem to Caesarea, and the Lord speaking of the fact that just as Paul, as he had earlier told Paul, you've borne witness to me in Jerusalem, now you will bear witness to me in Rome. And while he's on that uh, journey by ship, you might remember uh, the great storm that he found himself in the middle of, a storm so great that ultimately it's going to end in a shipwreck. Uh, of the ship that they're on. And, the, and uh, Paul uh, received revelation from God, which he declared in uh, Acts chapter 27 uh, to the uh, passengers on the ship and to the captain. And he said, now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted uh, you, all, uh, the, you all those who sail uh, with you. And so the visions were a common part. Revelation was a common part of his Christian life. It was just an evidence that these people knew nothing about the Apostle Paul. Nobody had done their homework on him uh, at all. And then he reveals now uh, this uh, uh, revelation and, and vision as well. And, and I take all uh, the time to lay all of this out because it's important to, uh, to understand that Paul is not diminishing the supernatural in the Christian life. He is not diminishing revelation. He is not diminishing uh, 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 visions uh, and the importance of these things in the Christian life and in, in the local church. He's just saying that because they were given as a gift from God to Him and to us, and, they, and they're given to us not based upon any merit or us earning it or deserving it at all, uh, uh, that they're never ever to be a cause for boasting in these kind of things or a cause for uh, spiritual pride. And here he refers to a specific vision he'd received from God, uh, verse 2, 14 years earlier. This would have been about A.D. Uh, 42 to 44. In fact, this vision that he received was even before he began any of his uh, missionary uh, journeys. And the fact that Paul kept this vision to himself for 14 years speaks to the fact that he did not consider these things uh, to be a cause for boasting or self-exaltation. Apparently, uh, the vision was given to Paul by God for his personal edification. It was not for the church. And I have no doubt that the Apostle Paul received it for his own personal edification. This great vision that he receives of vision of, of heaven itself, given the kind of hardship that he was going to go through in his uh, public ministry as he lays it out there in chapter 11, the encouragement of vision uh, of the glory of heaven that awaited him uh, at the end of his very, very difficult uh, life and ministry. We're told that he was caught up into the third heaven in verse 2, 
and into paradise in verse 4. This speaks of the very glory uh, of, of heaven it, itself. The first heaven uh, speaks of the atmosphere around us. The second heaven in ancient days, it spoke of uh, the universe, the sun, the moon, the stars. And the third heaven was always a reference to the very dwelling place of God. Paul declares further in verses 2 and 3 that this, whether this vision came to him uh, in the body or out of the body, he still didn't know. After 14 years, he still could, couldn't figure out aspects of all of this. He didn't know whether this revelation had come to him by means of a vision or whether God had actually taken him bodily uh, into that glory of heaven. Uh, the Greek word that Paul employs there in verse 2 for being caught up into heaven, harpazo, it's the same word that the Apostle Paul used in his first letter to the church at Thessalonica in chapter 4, speaking of the rapture of the church, and which might point to the fact that uh, the Apostle Paul was actually taken into heaven uh, bodily in this uh, event. Uh, only, it's just food for thought. Uh, Paul didn't know, and he was content with that. He said, he, re he repeats himself twice, God knows. God knows the, the questions and the mystery surrounding all of this. To Paul, what was important was the revelation, not the means by which it occurred. He tells us in verse 4, that while uh, there in the glory of heaven, he heard inexpressible words which uh, it is not lawful for a man to utter. And the idea of not lawful carries the idea of not being appropriate for it to be spoken, that, it's, uh, that it should not uh, be done in attempt to describe the glory of heaven. And so Paul felt uh, that it wouldn't be right to describe it, not only what he saw there, he's not talking about it wouldn't be lawful to, to declare what I saw there. He says it wouldn't be lawful for me to, 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 to try and describe in a human language what I even heard there uh, while in the midst of that glory. And he described it as inexpressible, literally uh, too sacred to be put into words. And I'm inclined to believe that the Apostle Paul felt that even any attempt uh, to describe it, even given the vastness of his, his theological vocabulary, would only mar it. Uh, it would only, uh, it, it, it would be so unable to, to do it justice that it would lead us down a wrong path in terms of our understanding uh, of, of the glory uh, of heaven. And so he said, I'm, I, I, it, it would be unlawful to describe it, which is all perfectly fine, because the vision wasn't given to him for Corinth. It wasn't even given to him for us. The vision was given to him for him, and, and uh, between him and God. Now, it is important in verses 2 and 3 to notice how the Apostle Paul almost twists himself 
inside out and, and getting this revelation, this vision out of his, uh, onto the printed uh, page here. I mean, you read it, and he's repeating himself, and, and, you, and you go, it's just, he it, 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 it just couldn't say anything uh, in, in some aspects with, with less clarity than, uh, than, he, than he actually uh, does here. You notice that he gives a uh, gives this entire account concerning uh, this revelation in the third person. He communicates it as if he's communicating it about another person, despite the fact that he is talking about himself. And why would he do that? Because he so hated doing this kind of thing. What the, the false apostles were doing and what they were forcing him into doing here, comparing themselves among themselves, making these kind of things a badge of spirituality, and boasting when all this boasting and glorying should always be directed by God in terms of any vision or any revelation. Even uh, for the, he hated even speaking about this vision, even for the sake of keeping the church at Corinth from being deceived by these false apostles. And so he just couldn't bring himself to speak it in the first person. He, he couldn't bring himself to say, I did this. Or I experienced this. He just couldn't get the I word out. Just saying it in, in the third person was such a personal sacrifice uh, uh, to him. He didn't want anybody, as we see in, in verses 5 and 6, to think that he is something great for having received this kind of revelation. Again, uh, the, the point being that it's God who gives these revelations. It's God who gives these uh, visions. And so the receiver of these things can't boast in, in having received them. Uh, God is the one to receive the glory. And yet the false apostles in that church and people yet today take and use these things that God can give us in our lives and then uses them as an opportunity to try and engage in selfish ambition or to put other people down or to exalt uh, oneself spiritually. And so uh, Paul uh, speaks here and declares, you know, if you, if you want a testimony, in essence, if you wanted a testimony from Paul uh, about his weaknesses, if you wanted Paul to testify, not to visions and revelations, but to testify to his infirmities, how weak he was, then Paul says, that's a boast. That's a discussion I will readily enter into uh, in a moment. Uh, but uh, that's what I bring into my Christian life. I bring into it weakness. I bring into it infirmity. And, and I do not bring strength and all of these kind of things that the false apostles were declaring about themselves. He said, you want to talk about that? How, God, how great God is in a life that is as weak and infirmed as mine? I'll be happy to give you that revelation and talk about this. But this other stuff is foolishness and it's boasting. 
And it's in this context that Paul went on to say that in verse 7 that a thorn uh, in the flesh was given to him by uh, God. And this thorn in the flesh, as you might imagine just in reading about it, if you've ever had a thorn uh, in the flesh, it clearly speaks about something unpleasant um, in life. Uh, nobody uh, posts a thorn in their flesh on Facebook uh, or something like that. It's just not the kind of thing that uh, people glory in. And so, this thorn in the flesh, something very, very unpleasant in his life, and, uh, and, and uh, so much so that in verse 8, that Paul tells us that he pleaded with the Lord three times that God would remove this uh, from, his, uh, from his life. Now, there's all kinds of speculation about exactly what this thorn uh, in the flesh uh, might be. And so, is it some kind of a physical malady that he was experiencing? Uh, was it some kind of an emotional uh, uh, thorn or difficulty or weakness that was uh, upon his life? Some particular person that was in his life that was uh, causing him difficulty? And so, there's all kinds of speculation related to all of this. If I was forced to guess uh, between all of those, I'd be inclined to think that it was something physical. Uh, he does describe it as a, a thorn in the flesh. And the word that he uses in the original language for flesh, it literally speaks of flesh and bone. And, and an educated guess might be that his thorn in the flesh was whatever eye disease that he apparently had, uh, that he wrote about to the church there in his letter to the churches in Galatia how they would have uh, gladly given their own eyes to him uh, because of this disease or affliction that he had uh, with, within, uh, within his eyes. But then again, he might just be simply using the phrase, a thorn in the flesh, in the way that we might just refer to it, not literally, but figuratively, of something that's difficult in our, our life. We can talk about a difficult person in our life as being someone who is a thorn uh, in our side. Oh, he's been a thorn or she's been a thorn in my side for years. And so maybe he's speaking about it in, in that way. But apparently, it, in not telling us exactly what it is, it's intentional. It's intentional. So that we do not narrow down his thorn into the, in the flesh to one specific thing. So that when God brings a thorn into the flesh in our lives, that would not be exactly like the one that he brought into Paul's life, we wouldn't be hesitant to call it a thorn in the flesh that God has given me that is designed to accomplish in me the same thing it was designed to accomplish in the Apostle Paul. So it can be something physical. It can be something emotional. It can be something that is difficult within our uh, within our lives. And this thorn that he talks about, in the grammar of it, it speaks of something that was intermittent. It was something, and something that was ongoing in his life. He was never freed from it. Uh, this, whatever this was that was in 
in his life. And the idea is that, uh, that we are free to take and apply this passage and what Paul says about his thorn in the flesh uh, to any and all thorns in the flesh that, that we might experience for the same reason that the Apostle Paul did. The word thorn is important to notice as well. The, the Greek word that Paul uses, it just speaks of something that's pointed. So it can refer to a thorn uh, off of a rose bush. It can, report, uh, it, it can refer to a pointed tent stake or a, a sharpened uh, spear uh, uh, as well. And, uh, and, and it applies all the way. It could be any of those things. And so certainly something like a tent stake in the flesh would constitute a, a very uh, uncomfortable and unpleasant physical uh, condition. But so can a significant wood sliver, or worse, a metal sliver in uh, the wrong place in a body that you just can't quite dig out, and now everything you touch is a reminder of that metal sliver that's in your thumb or in your index finger or whatever it, it, it might be. And so we get a, a hint, though, I think, of the severity of whatever this thorn was that Paul uh, was dealing with uh, we get a hint at, 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 at least the, the, the scope of, of it, the size of it, in terms of, uh, of the severity of its effect upon Paul as he gives it to us uh, in, in the very next line when he declares it to be a messenger of Satan uh, sent in order to buffet him. And the word buffet, it means to beat, it means to strike with the fist. And so whatever it was, it represented a challenge to his life. But it was a challenge in his life that God very carefully weighed, that it would keep him from spiritual pride, but it would never incapacitate him from accomplishing what God had called him uh, to do. He describes it in verse 7 further as a messenger of Satan uh, uh, to buffet him, as I mentioned. Uh, the, the messenger, the word Paul uses there is angelos. It speaks of an angel of Satan. It's some kind of a, of a demonic affliction, something that God allowed the devil to afflict the apostle Paul uh, with. And then very significantly in verse 7, Paul gives us the purpose behind all of this, the purpose of God in allowing it. And it was lest Paul should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. In other words, God gave this to him in order to protect Paul from the pride that's in the spiritual pride that can come into our lives by when, we, when a person is used by God in a powerful way or the spiritual pride that we can experience when God uh, manifests Himself in, in His power within our life, or spiritual gifts or visions uh, within our, our lives. In the New Testament, one of the Greek words that's used for pride, it means to see myself above. It means to see myself above other people. It means to see myself above others, to see myself as more important than them, 
to see myself as more uh, valuable than them. And of course, if I see myself as above them, then I will find it necessary to show people that I am better than them and above them. In other words, spiritual pride or any pride in the human heart will never be content to just simply uh, abide with inside of us. It will always endeavor uh, to express uh, it, uh, it, itself in a human life. And of course, pride is the oldest sin in all of creation. It's the sin that brought down Lucifer, brought down Satan. It was a, his pride uh, that uh, brought sin into all of creation and his desire uh, to be equal with God. And pride is the most dangerous of all sins because it lies at the core of all other sins. Because all sins committed against God or committed against our fellow man occurs at their expense. And we commit them because we esteem ourselves to be above them and to be more important than them. Another danger of pride is that the first thing that pride does in a human life when it gains entry is it incapacitates our ability to recognize it in our own lives. We become too proud to recognize the pride in our life. And the only thing that is powerful and making us aware of our, our pride is the Word of God, as it would expose uh, it, 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 it to us. And that's why the proud person is always the last person to realize they've been operating in pride. Uh, I, I've been stinking up the room for months, or a person has for years uh, with, with pride, and uh, everybody else has seen it forever. And then we're, we're the last one to become aware of it. And there is no sin uglier or more out of place or more destructive in the kingdom of God than spiritual pride. And how great and evil it is is revealed in the links God went to here in order to protect Paul from being lifted up in spiritual pride as a result of God's use of him and as a result of God's blessings within his life. Whatever this thorn in the flesh was, it, it punctured, so to speak, any temptation toward pride in his life in this regard. And it kept him firmly planted in reality concerning himself. And what is that reality? Paul spoke about it elsewhere in Galatians chapter 6, verse 3. For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. He does not deceive God. He does not deceive anybody else. He is only successful in deceiving himself. Now, when we talk about spiritual pride, it can just be such a kind of a nebulous, undefined thing that's hard for us to get our, our minds around a little bit. So 
given the danger that it is to us in our lives as Christians, allow me to describe it very, very briefly in uh, just bullet points and describe it. There are many, many manifestations of spiritual pride. But we'll limit ourselves to the expressions of spiritual pride in these false apostles as they're revealed uh, by the Holy Spirit uh, here in 2 Corinthians so that we can recognize this kind of thing in our own lives and then want nothing uh, to do with it. One mark of spiritual pride is uh, the slandering of other people. Always a mark of, of pride. Uh, slandering others in order to destroy their reputation or destroy them in order to uh, gain their influence or in order to gain their position. Selfish ambition, always an expression uh, of pride. Self-promotion, promoting and and commending myself uh, to others. A hunger for power or position or recognition is is always an evidence of spiritual pride. Mistreating other people, always a mark of spiritual pride. Uh, The mistreatment of other Christians, mistreatment of anyone in the world, certainly the mistreatment of other servants uh, of God as they were uh, doing. Abusive leadership which they were uh, modeling there and and practicing in the church of Corinth is always a manifestation of pride. But it's not just true in a church. It can be true in a home or can be true in a workplace if if my uh, leadership is an abusive leadership. Comparing ourselves to other people with a sense of superiority Always a manifestation of pride. Judging others spiritually and negatively based upon their outward appearance or their speech. Seeing my gifting and my calling as being better or more important in the eyes of God uh, than uh, that of other people. Uh, Boasting in God's use of us including his manifestation of spiritual gifts and revelation in our lives. Receiving glory that belongs only to God is spiritual pride. Teaching false doctrine is the ultimate in spiritual pride. And, uh, and uh, preaching any other Jesus or any other uh, gospel It always reveals a very low view of Scripture in someone, uh, in a person where they've exalted themselves. Now they think they're smarter than even God. Uh, Deliberately living an unholy, disobedient, unseparated Christian life is always a mark of pride. And then encouraging other people to do as well is always a mark of pride. Unwilling to endure hardship in God's calling upon our lives, choosing instead to live a self-defined Christianity, to live a Christian life and engage in Christian service on my terms rather than God's terms is always a mark of spiritual pride. The absence of the fear of God is spiritual pride. And then allow me to follow this up 
with uh, uh, reading a few verses to you that speak to the danger of pride in our lives, the destructiveness of pride within our lives, to understand and to realize, to view how uh, a, a sober view of how dangerous spiritual pride is uh, in our lives. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. Six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises evil plans, feet that are swift in turning to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, uh, pride and arrogance, and the evil way, and, uh, and the perverse mouth I hate. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2. When pride comes, then comes shame, always. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10. By pride comes nothing but strife, always. If I'm proud, I will always feel like I, and, and superior to other people, that I always must prove it to other people. And they tend not to like that very much. So it will always create uh, conflict. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 25, the Lord will destroy the house of the proud. Proverbs 16, verse 5, everyone proud in heart is abomination to the Lord. Though they join forces, none will go unpunished. Proverbs chapter 26, uh, verse 12, do you see a man wise in his own eyes? Uh, there is more hope for a fool than for him. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Jesus spoke on the issue of, of pride uh, with uh, spiritual pride with equal sobriety. Uh, Mark chapter 7, verse 20, and he said, what comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, and evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, and all these evil things come from within and defile a man. Defile, defile, evil, and then he speaks of pride in that context. Jesus in Mark chapter 23 verse 12 said, And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And all of this helps us to understand the great danger that spiritual pride is to us and the great danger that a thorn in the flesh can be in protecting us in terms of pride and its terrible destructiveness in our lives and in the body of Christ and in other people's lives as well. And what a great, great evil spiritual pride is. And, 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 and how, uh, how destructive it must be 
is revealed in the links that God went to here in order to protect Paul from being lifted up in spiritual pride as a result of God's use uh, uh, of, uh, of him. And we're certainly no less prone to spiritual pride than the Apostle Paul. It's very, very simplistic to view as a Christian all of the good times in life as being from God, and then all of the hard things come from the devil. Uh, a hard thing, even a thorn in the flesh, can be good when it keeps us humble and it keeps us free from spiritual pride, it keeps us dependent upon God, and it keeps us close to God. And in the light of all of this, it's very good to examine hardships in our own lives. Things we can just be prone to look at as just the ebb and flow of, of life and, uh, or this situation or this thing that I have to deal with in my life. It's just bad luck or it's just an unfortunate turn of events. And, and to see if some of them haven't been orchestrated by God at times in order to protect us from the greater hardship and the greater danger of spiritual pride, the destruction that the devil would have uh, led us into, the destruction of our Christian life, the destruction of our Christian witness, if God had not humbled us in some way to force us closer to Him during that particular season uh, within our lives. And then in this regard, notice that Paul came to view this thorn in the flesh as a gift from God to him. In verse 7, he wrote, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. Paul considered it a gift from God to him. The word given in the original language it means to give, to bestow, to grant, to give an object, usually implying value. And Paul never considered this. You never see a hint of it anywhere in this passage. Never did he uh, uh, look at this and see it as a curse in his life or cause for resentment in his life uh, against God. He viewed it as a gift from God to protect him from this horrible thing called spiritual pride. And if our Christian life was all visions, if it was all revelations, if it was all mountaintop experiences and endless ease and comfort, how in the world could we not become spiritually pride, proud as a result? And so God knows how to just balance all of it just perfectly in order that we will not have the flow of His power and grace interrupted in our lives by spiritual pride. And so how can a thorn in the flesh allowed by God be a gift in our lives? It's a gift when it protects us from spiritual, life, spiritual pride. And, and spiritual pride is the single greatest danger to our Christian lives and to our Christian service. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, what an amazing passage that is before us. What an amazing insight into
the Apostle Paul's life and the danger of spiritual pride. And I pray and we pray for one another that, Lord, to any degree to which spiritual pride has taken root within our lives, that you would expose it through your word, and then, Lord, that we would repent of it and that we would turn away from it so that it doesn't do the kind of damage in our lives that we've read about here today. And Lord, we also pray for one another that if any of us have a thorn in the flesh presently, or you have given us a gift of a thorn in the flesh in order to keep us humble and to protect us from spiritual pride, and that this thing within our life, this weakness, this infirmity within our life isn't just the, the, the uh, breaking down of a body or the breaking down of a mind or the weakening of emotions or uh, just the ebb and flow of life in terms of circumstances, but something that you have given to us to protect us, that you would help us to reassess our lives and to reassess the infirmities in our lives and reveal to us, Lord, what it is that we are experiencing that keeps us, as you kept Paul, from the destructiveness of spiritual pride. And we ask, Lord, for this work of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.